Okay, everyone, we have a young rider on the podcast today that has showed some amazing progression over the years. He won the Tour de Suisse, his national championship jersey, as well as many other top results in the 2023 season. Mateus Skimoza joins us today, Yenzi. Great chat. Yes, it was a great chat indeed. And to our viewers and listeners, if you have time to uh, Google, he might be in the future, not the first rider winning the Tour de Suisse first and ending up winning a Tour de France, like some certain Eddie Max, for example, did that before. So there's a lot of potential and talent in him. It was a little bit of a rocky start for us because... Matthias misjudged or his management misjudged the timing. So they thought we are on London time, but we're actually on Paris time, which is an hour later. So I'm still in the shower while our producer calls me and I'm like, like half naked, like getting the towel around myself. And hey, what's up? We at the usual time. Ah, no, our guest is early. Oh, yeah. Then I quickly run, get dressed and run out of the shower to get to our guest. Then we had a little bit of hiccup with the sound. You will enjoy it. The sound might change a little bit, some highs and lows, but it turns better after the first few minutes. So stay tuned. Trust us. It will be absolutely worth listening to this one. Okay, everyone. Welcome, Matthias Skelmose to Bobby and Jens. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Man, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, you have had one heck of a season. And it looks like your season ended with the Maryland Cycling Classic, which I actually got to watch, and then the, the Canadian races. So what have you been up to since then? And um, what are you doing right now, actually? I, I hear there's an interesting uh, time limit we have on the podcast today. <laughs> no, I mean, I've just been relaxing and, uh, and uh, you know, just enjoying time at home. No bike and... Um, Later this year, we'll move to Swiss and um, just preparing all of these stuff. And then now uh, I had a little bit of panic because uh, uh, your producer is uh, is setting time in uh, British summertime. And, and uh, you know, I'm in European central time. So uh, it can be a bit hard. And now I need to pick up a car. So, so tell us about this car. I mean, points mean prizes. We know that. But um, what about car? Is this like a sponsorship or are you uh, treating yourself to something new? No, it's just my girlfriend that borrowed it and I need to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And um, you were just saying that you have time off the bike, right? It's your official off season. How much time then you actually take off the bike, like completely no sport at all? And you're going to use that time for holiday? And where do you want to go? No, uh, I took um, three weeks off the bike completely. And then uh, just stayed at home. I'm a really big family guy. And finishing up with a big block in the US and Canada really um, made, made me tired of traveling. So I'm happy of being home. Also with me traveling to... Oh, Uh, Swiss and uh, to stay there it really um, makes it nice to have some time home for now yeah there's there's nothing like the off season there's nothing like time at home but you know I was going to ask this a little bit later um, a I'm totally proud of you for 
taking responsibility and going and picking up your, your girlfriend's car. I mean, we kind of, throughout the season, we lead such a selfish lifestyle, right? And it's hard to kind of get back home and chill out and, and deal with the responsibilities that we may have neglected, if you know what I mean, during, during the season. I mean, we're, you're always training, so you're, you're tired. You're always hangry because you're looking after your diet, right? Um, I used to come home from a hotel, uh, you know, from, from a trip, and I would leave the dirty towels on the floor. I would leave the toilet seat up. <laughs> I would forget to put my fork in the dishwasher, and my wife would freak out. So, you know, how is it adjusting back to being at home for these last three re weeks rather than riding your bike, massage schedule, and having food cooked for you and your laundry folded for you? No, it's, it's always weird coming back after these days and, you know, just entering normal life. Uh, but for me, I actually enjoyed it a little bit, you know, seeing friends and cook, cook a little bit of normal food, you know, not have to weigh everything and ju just relax a bit more in the head and, and feel a little bit normal because to be honest, we're not normal people. We will, uh, we, we're always on the go and never really have a normal life. So, uh, it, it, for me, it's quite nice to feel normal a little bit. So, um, feeling normal, what would be a normal Danish typical meal you want to have in the off season? Something that you cannot have in the season because it's too much calories or too much fat in it or whatever. What's like a typical Danish piece of food? You go, oh man, I'm going to have it the first day after the season stops. Uh, I'm a big fan of, I'm not sure what it's called, but it's like uh, a pig sandwich. The ribs of the pig, so uh, you have some really soft meat and then some really crispy part with the fat, and then you have like, um, yeah, I don't know, it's like called a pig sandwich. I think it's direct translated. Lovely. I uh, I'm yet to try one of those. Um, I don't know if you know because you're so much younger than us, but you know, Jens and I race for a Danish team, CSC, and we got to. Um, meet a lot of Danish guys and obviously Danish management, um, you know, during our, during our time at that squad. And yeah, there was some characters on that team and um, remember eating some pretty funky things at our training camps up there in, in Denmark. But, you know, how much longer do you think you're going to stay off the bike and, you know, that, that's always a tricky question, right? And you've been going since, man, I mean, you had a fantastic 2022 season. You started off the season in 2023, winning already in February, and your last win was in, in September. Um, is it a set thing that you and your coach talk about, or is it more of a feeling thing when you're just like, okay, I need to get back on the bike now? No, uh, we, um, we had the break early. And that uh, we did on purpose because uh, I actually had both Luxembourg and Paris Tours on the program, but I was already mentally on the limit. And then uh, we chose to um, stop early, have a three-week break because that's what we always do. And then uh, when you start early, you can also focus uh, more on the gym work and stuff like this really heavy strength work, which is something I've, I've been missing. And I think something could improve my performance quite a lot. So, uh, 
we we start already now. You're already starting um, to well for the next season. That's that that's early. Will you then also try to start the season quite early with Argentina or the Tour Down Under, or would you you know anything about these plans or not yet? No, uh, I spoke with uh, Kim, as you both know. Um, <laughs> already have more or less my program ready. Uh, I will uh, start with Hautevar in France in the middle of uh, February, and uh, try to push in uh, an extra altitude camp in uh, end of January, start February. So I will have a long training block now. Wow. Wow. Um, so tell us and our listeners, when you do take that much time off the bike after a long season, um, what do you focus on in that first week or, or two? Are you just being active again or are you already thinking about your, your diet, your position, you know, all the, all the things that you think about later on in the season? No, now the, the first month is really all about strength work. Not super much, uh, uh, many hours on the bike. I will do maximum three hours and then a lot of strength work all the time, especially, uh, on the core work. I've, I've been having some back problems, uh, that uh, we think is, uh, due to, uh, a weak core. So I've really been working a lot of this already. And, uh, and that's the main focus the last couple of days. And also now we will go to the U.S. the 16th of October. So I will not be on the bike again there, but I will still do some strength work. And um, since you now have a long time to plan next season, any wind tunnel tests planned or bike fitting or are you going to look into your TT position or you no, it's just perfect the way it is. I don't touch it or you want to improve there as well in the coming months. No, I did a, a big bike fit uh, before last season and I'm really happy with my position for the first time uh, in my career, I think. And then uh, after I flew home from Canada, uh, I went straight to uh, Eindhoven to do wind tunnel testing. So there we had a good five hours doing positioning and uh, clothing testing. So we don't have to do it here in December and early in the season. Uh, so we are pretty set for next season already. Wow, you just uh, reminded me of a couple things. Like, a lot of guys would go and do wind tunnel testing in in the spring, and I was like, "Wait a second! Like, these guys aren't at their race weight right now, and we're fitting them to clothing and and to bike positions." So, hats off to your your team, your coaching staff, your advisors for doing it when you're race fit. I mean, when you come back from your your american north american campaign of racing obviously you're 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 ready you're you're fit so that's the the right time to do that sort of stuff but another thing i'm interested about in cycling seems to be seems to revolve around coffee right coffee shops coffee shop rides um what is your take on a coffee shop ride or you know we we meet at the coffee shop it's a place for us to meet to socialize to fuel before the ride, to maybe refuel for the second half of the ride. But what is your take? Do you like coffee stop rides or do you like stopping in the middle of a ride for, for a coffee and a, uh, a cake, a Danish, if you will? Uh, I, I don't drink coffee the first uh, two hours after I wake up, but I love to have a stop uh, in the middle of a ride. Just uh, fast, having uh, coffee, maximum 20 minutes. I, I don't like to have pastries so much. 
little bit more in the later in the season, but uh, I, I like a quick coffee uh, uh, in the middle of the ride. I think it's nice to have uh, just a little bit to look forward to if you have a hard train or just, you know, you're, you're not motivated. It can always save a little bit to go out and uh, you know you have this good stop and you know, okay, this place has really good coffee and you're going to enjoy a lot with your friends and stuff. So that's uh, that's always an extra motivation when you feel bad. Yeah, I I wasn't the biggest fan of stopping in the middle of the ride for coffee. I, I remember Jens and most of our team was all into it, you know, getting the, the cappuccino, the espresso. But I just felt like if I stopped for long, for very long, especially sitting down, that once I got on the bike again, my legs felt like wood. And back in the CSC days, man, as soon as that coffee shop was open or w- was done, that coffee stop was done, Yenzi, we were back on the intervals like two minutes after that. And man, I, I stopped stopping for the coffee stops and i would just ride around the coffee shop when everyone else was in there because it made me feel so much better and i i remember yenzi do you what's your take on it you do remember loving those coffee stops well i loved them so much that I was okay with the pain afterwards. Yes, my legs <laughs> felt terrible after that as well. But I was such a coffee junkie. And then we had sometimes these little sandwiches. It was just too good to let it pass. So I rather struggled to the next 10 minutes afterwards. But yes, you're perfectly right, Bobby. You sit down, your body moves into recovery mode. Then you just have coffee and like this sandwich with ham and cheese on it. And... Then you go and then Bjarne is on the radio. Hey, boys, let's go and get a medium going. You, oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. But um, so, um, Matthias, you don't stop for that long anymore, don't you? No, I mean, it's really depending on what the guys want. But for me, I like maximum 15, 20 minutes. You know, go in, order the coffee, drink it, uh, enjoying it. Not just throw it down, but uh, going uh, again fast, you know. Uh, like Bobby saying, I don't like to stop for so long. And then, you know, you have a weird feeling in the body. And also I have to say, like preparing big goals, I don't like to stop. Only on uh, really short rides where you have nothing to do. Like if you're in altitude camps, it's quite nice to go down to a coffee shop and do something different. But like uh, but like going full gas uh, and and having a stop on hard trainings uh, towards big goals is it's not the, the best thing for me. Well, I know that you mentioned that you're going to be moving to Switzerland. Is that correct? It is. Okay. But, okay, again, we were uh, on a Danish team before. And training in Denmark in the winter is not the easiest thing. Let's face it. I mean, the weather is kind of cold. It's kind of wet. For some reason, there's a real flinty sort of substance that's on the roads um so if if one of our listeners or viewers goes training in denmark what are some of the tips to stay on the road and not have flat tires and ride in a group uh go in a small group so you can always turn have mud guards really good quality mud guards especially in the front and the back uh, and then, you know, just good clothing. Uh, it will really save you a lot of times. And yeah, for me, I'm starting using, um, 
I'm not sure what it's called, but it's like a, a hard plastic material that you put inside between the tire and the tube. And it's like an extra layer of protection. It's not feeling super good to ride with, but uh, you're happy when uh, you don't have the punctures. That makes perfect sense. Um, hey, actually, um, where are you born in Denmark? Because there's uh, lots of different parts and islands and uh, north and south and middle and bridges. So where are you born? And, and was it easy to pick up cycling at your little neighborhood? Uh, I'm born in Copenhagen. Uh, Copenhagen is quite big, but uh, I'm I'm born in Copenhagen. And then uh, since I was five, uh, I live on a small, not a small island, but like the island where the airport is placed. Uh, where it's like one third of the island is a national park. Uh, so there's no cars allowed. So for there, it was really easy to start riding. I don't have to think about cars and the local uh, yeah cycle club was really easy to get into, really open and uh, it, it was quite easy to get into cycling. Uh, you're from Copenhagen, right? Here's a little bit of interesting but absolutely useless piece of information for our viewers. In Copenhagen, there's a tower, a large uh, tower built by the king, for the king, and it doesn't have stairs. It has like a ramp because the bloody king was too lazy to walk up there. So instead of having stairs, he had a ramp. He could ride his horse up there to look over his country. Is that true? It's true. They actually had a, a time trial up there for old pros uh, a couple of years really? ago. Yeah. Wow. You know, th this is what it was like, Mateus, having Yenzi as a roommate for so long. Like, he'd all of a sudden just, like, put his little Game Boy down and turn and look at me and give me, like, some really interesting tidbit of knowledge that I probably will never use or never think of again. But um, now this one is documented on the podcast. But so, so if it's so easy to get into cycling in Denmark... There, I mean, let's let's face it. Everywhere you look now, there is a Danish nationality rider winning the races or very very close to the races, both in the men's and women's peloton. There's a difference between getting on the bike and then getting to the level that riders like yourself, Mads Pedersen, Casper, um, I mean Mat uh, Jonas. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, what are you guys doing? different or what does the Danish uh, upbringing kind of instill in you guys to be so successful all of a sudden? I, I, I don't know, uh, to be honest. Um, I asked this question so many times and the only thing I can see is that, uh, you know, everybody grow up racing each other and then one guy starts to perform and then uh, the next guy is like, oh, fuck, I need to be, uh, I beat him when we were younger. And then I can also beat him now. And then he continued like this. And then the first guy again, oh, fuck, I beat him the last week. And also as kids, and now I'm going to beat him again, you know. And then we push each other all the time. And I think we're just really competitive. And uh, that that makes it also fun. Because uh, the more Danish guys in front, it makes it more fun to us. Um, actually, I, I heard something like that uh, before from other Danish riders. Uh, to me, it seems that you Danish guys, you like to win. But you like even better to win in front of another Danish rider. Is yes. that correct? Yes, <laughs> that's 100% true. You know, uh, in Denmark, we have this called the, the law of Jande, where it's like uh, the first law is that you should not think you're better than anybody else. And uh, 
I, you know, it, it's a it's a stupid thing, but you know, we always want to perform better. We always want to be the best Danish guy, and uh, yeah, even for yeah top ten, we want to fight for it always. Always, so um, yeah, it's uh, it's just uh, the competitive gene that uh, we always want to do good. But I mean that that that's great, and I think that my generation um, of some American cyclists, we, we had that same thing, but it, I've heard from different people that we've had on our podcasts, like Jakob Fulsong, uh, Michael Valgren, um, guys like that, that you guys actually have like a text thread or like a group chat, you know, amongst some Danish guys where you're actually encouraging each other. I mean, that, that goes a long, a long way because, okay, you guys live in, in Scandinavia, which is like right there in, in Europe. Right. I mean, you don't have to travel that far if things go, you know, tits up and you're you're kind of depressed and whatnot. But cycling is full of ups and downs. I mean, one day you're on top of the mountain, the next time you're on the bottom of the crap heap, right? Um, how do how do you deal with those ups and downs throughout a season? And do you lean on on anybody in particular when things aren't going super good? Yeah, I, I mean. Uh... Uh, I have my coach now since I was 70 uh, and we got a really close relationship. He's almost like a father to me or he is like a father to to me. And, um, you know, I always uh, talk with him when I have problems. Uh, he always teach me stuff, uh, you know, tell me to stay calm. And what we just learned from this is like every time I have a really big down, I always improve a lot of my performance. So even though it's really shit to have this down, we we, we know, okay, we, we made a mistake. We look what the mistake was, we change it, and then we perform better the next time. So you're in daily contact with your coach or you send him a mail once a week with all your power files from the workouts you did or is it like a daily contact almost? No, like uh, 90% of our contact is just friendly contact. Like how was your day? How's the family? send pictures when we are riding and uh, oh, it's five degrees five degrees here and oh how warm it is in Spain oh, 30 degrees oh, I wish I was there you know something like this just uh, what French would talk about well you guys are doing something right because in 2021 you were ranked 154th in the world in 2022 you were ranked 42nd and as of now currently you're ranked 12th in the world um That to me is a definition of progression. How much further do you think that you can go here? I mean, top 12 in the world at 23 ain't too shabby, my friend. No, I mean, we are happy where we are, but we still know we can improve a lot of stuff. So that's uh, make me motivated that I can do better. You know, I still see uh, some one day races where I can do better. Especially the Athens, I did top 10, but only in the last part of the top 10. Also the Canadian races, you know, I think we can do better there, fight for the win. And, um, you know, just in general, we, we found out that I could lose three kilos and still perform really good. And, um, you know, we are still have things in training we can improve. So uh, we are quite confident that I still can take a, a couple of other steps. So then, um, where do you see yourself? I mean, you you did some really good results in one-day races. You did really good in stage races, shorter ones. 
where do you want to go? You think you want to specialize on hard races like Gio Lombardia and um, the Ardennes Classics or maybe Perinis, all these races? No, I mean, uh, me and my coach dream since with the beginning was we will do uh, or want to do uh, a Tour de France podium. And that's the way I want to go. And uh, both me, my coach and Kim believes that we combine the Adens and uh, a Grand Tour GC. So uh, that's what we are searching for and what we're working uh, towards. We'll be right back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Matthias. Well, um, two of my favorite writers of all time, Greg Van Evermet, who has been on the podcast before, and Mickey Shar, uh, recently announced their retirement. And I heard something today that I've heard Greg say often, and I kind of agree with him. He said, sleep well, train well, eat well, and enjoy what you're doing, and, but don't think too much. Um, what do you think about that philosophy? No, 100%. I mean, it can have a lot of meanings, but what I struggle with a lot is uh, overthinking things I cannot change. And I think uh, what I'm trying to work towards is that if you can change it, then don't have a worry because it's not going to do anything good. And then uh, if it will be good again, it's going to be good again. And if it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad. You know, you cannot do anything. So just focus on yourself and uh, yeah, let uh, whatever happen. Bobby, that reminds me so much on the soldier, B.S. Christensen, when he always used to say, hey, guys, we have what we have. Stop complaining about things we don't have. We have what we have and we got to work the best way with what we have. And he also said, Don't waste energy trying to control the uncontrollable things like the weather. We have no influence on it. So stop worrying about it. Focus, just like you said, focus on the things they are in your hands. So you're on the right way, my friend. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, at, at 23, I'm blown away. Um, obviously, this the sport is um, transitioned um, much different than than when we were racing. But just to just to hear what you're saying, um, yeah, you're going to go far. You're, you're going to go far. Um, keep it simple, stupid. That's another one um, that I've, you know, over the years have kind of thought about and said, man, why why did I focus on that one thing out of a hundred that was wrong when I had 99 things going right? But Stephen DeYonga, when he came on our podcast, he actually said during the Maryland cycling classic that, or that trip to um, North America that he sat down and said, Hey, you're, you're in the right, you're going in the right direction right now. Don't try to change too much, but it sounds like you're willing to make some changes. You just said you started core work. Um, you know, there's other things that you and your coach are going to factor in. Um, so are you kind of experimenting one by one or are you going to, try everything at once and see what, what works this off season. No, no, no. Uh, we always stick with what working and then use change a small thing every year. We, we want something to, uh, to build on 
every year. Uh, of course, you cannot continue with this all the time. But uh, for the next couple of years, we have small things that we still can change or not change, but put extra to the training. And um, it's nice to have this in mind because then uh, you know you can still take another step when you know when you have a, a a bad day or a bad result. You always know you can still improve at some point, but you need to save a little bit because um, we are we are afraid that I can burn out too soon. So that's why we want to take it a little bit easy. Makes perfect sense. You still only 23 years old i wasn't even pro i was still amateur and um, i think at 23 my wife just told me that she's pregnant for the first time <laughs> but i was i was far away from being a bike professional um but um, just out of interest uh, earlier you said you lost three kilos and you could still perform well these three kilos that's quite like, i mean you're already a, a skinny athlete was it all muscle mass or you you used uh, you lost fat And what was your fat percentage, if you're allowed to share that with us, uh, going into the tour or coming out of the Tour de France? I'm, I'm curious about uh, how that works in these days. No, um, we we um, we have a scale with the doctors, and uh, it, it's a little bit higher than a lot of other teams. I don't know why, but in that scale, I was. <laughs> That's what uh, you all say. <laughs> no, no, I was I was at eight percent. And that's uh, what a uh, tour leader should be at in this scale. Um, and I think in a lot of other teams, you should be probably be a lot below six or something like this. Uh, but I, lo I lost like 3% of fat. And I, I think I lost some muscles. I cannot say, but I still had a really good kick. But it's uh, mainly fat. You know, Kim has uh, this... Um, his own fat measurement when you come to the stomach like this. Ah. And, uh, <laughs> He's and, still doing that. He did that yes. as well. <laughs> that is so and cool. Then, uh, the, the first time in the tour, he came to my stomach. I'm like, oh, you look good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You just gave me PTSD. Um, that started <laughs> with sorry. Bjorna. That started you know, with Bjorna. But, so Kim must have nice picked up on that. You're skinny. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Okay. So let, let's just talk through your, your 2023 season, because you said after the North American races, you were a little bit mentally burned out, but let, let, like, let's just go through it. So you started off, you must have had a very good winner of training because you started off winning a stage in a 12 de Bessege and finishing second overall. Um, you had a lot of, uh, let's say very consistent results between there and flesh well -own where you were second to Tade Pogacar, uh, um, you know, our listeners and viewers may know him, him as well. And then you had some strong uh, uh, results in the remaining Ardennes races. And then you go have a little bit of a time off and then you go and you win the tour of Switzerland, holding off Juan Ayuso and Remco Evenepoel in the, in the final time trial. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, winning the tour de Swiss, I would put up there right underneath winning one of the three grand tours as, as far as I'm concerned, but talk us through that spring buildup ending with winning the tour de Swiss. Most people stop their season or, you know, don't think of going to the tour, but you went to the tour and then kept going after that. Um, no wonder why you're tired, but, 
talk us a little <laughs> bit through that 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 whole period, and especially the Tour de Suisse win. No, uh, after the Athens, I took uh, one week completely off the bike, and then uh, went straight sixteen days to alt- to altitude, and then uh, went down for one week, five days with Kim doing recon for the tour, home two days, then back eighteen days to altitude. Uh, then down two days before Swiss, doing recon on Col de la Loz with Kim, and then directly to Swiss. So it was basically training camp all the time. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we did some good testing before Swiss, and I told my coach, I think it's only Remco that could beat me. Uh, and when we came there, it was it was true. I mean, I, I felt incredible. Uh, of course, there was some circumstances doing it a uh, little bit special race with Genius dead. Uh, but yeah, it was it's a special race for me. It's the first time I really do good, and uh, I actually never did top ten in a one week stage race before. And uh, to win to the Swiss just before the tour was uh, quite incredible. So, um, listening to you, uh, you basically told the team or the coach. If things go bad, I be second. If they go good, I win. So you knew from the start that uh, out of training and the values uh, you had in the training that you'd be good enough to be podium in Tour de Suisse. I mean, of course, you never knew how the other guys is. But I was there three kilos lighter than the Adens, uh pushing more watts uh, straight out of the altitude. And, you know, the other guys coming there, what... Where you know having it as a goal, but not preparing for the tour, so they would probably not be the same low weight, not coming from altitude. So, so I was confident, yes. But to do those training camps to win the Tour de Suisse, you didn't stop there. You went to the Danish National Time Trial Championship and got second between uh, behind Casper uh, Asgreen. And then you won your national championship road race. Um, then you get s- selected for the tour. Were you always selected for the tour? Or did that just amazing run of form propel you into the team? No, it was always the plan since October oh, last year to do the tour. Uh, but of course, a lot of things changed with me performing so good right before the tour. Uh, so that made it a little bit more special. <laughs> Um, after Tour de Suisse, I mean, that was probably the highlight of your career until then, right? The biggest, most spectacular win. And I mean, you did beat some good riders there, right? Yeah. Going into the Tour, were you nervous how that is going to go? Or you went, let's stick to the plan. I try maybe to win a stage. I'm not looking into the GC. Or did you have a little voice in your head going, hey, try the GC. Maybe you can run the top 10. How, how was that? No, the plan was from the beginning, I should do the GC. And uh, of course, with the crash on stage five, it ruined it a little bit. But uh, I was quick to change my mind and uh, working for a stage. Um, That didn't happen. But I was quite satisfied with my performance. You know, I I feel I was a big part of Mass win on stage eight. And an even bigger part of uh, Chico's uh, KOM jersey. So I'm quite happy with my first tour. But uh, I was really surprised how uh, mentally hard it was. Yeah, the, the mental side of this sport um, goes 
underestimated or under contexted, I guess, because, you know, all year you're just struggling. But what did what did you feel after you won the Maryland Cycling Classic and came back from North America? What what is the definition and what did you feel of being mentally fatigued? Because I think so many athletes don't listen to themselves and then keep trying to, you know, get the last drop of blood out of the turnip. But it seemed like like so what what do you feel? What was that alarm bell going off in your head where you were just like, Kim? Um, I, I, I need, I need to st stop the season a little bit earlier and not do Luxembourg and the other races that you mentioned. Uh, well, when I started in Montreal, it was pissing rain. Uh, I was starting to find the excuses for not to start saying I felt bad and, and these kind of stuff. And like in the middle of the race, I was like, fuck, I'm not sure I can do this. Uh, so, um, I put the team to pull because uh, uh, I was feeling good in the legs, but the head was completely off. And I know uh, when the team starts to work for me, I have a really good motivation to perform good. Uh, so I put the team to pull to do a good performance in the end. And then when I arrived home, the only thing that motivated to go on the bike was to have a coffee, uh, coffee stop. And, you know, going one hour, Having two-hour coffee stuff, I was like, okay, it, it, it's time to stop now. It's a wise and sensible decision, you know. Mm -hmm. Instead of, like, squeezing everything out and your mind goes, I don't want to do this anymore, you know. It's like, okay, I can feel the signs. That's a nice uh, and a reasonable decision. And, Bobby, what you and me, would we have the guts to tell our coaches <laughs> and the team at 23 years old, look, listen, Time out. I can't do this anymore. I, I don't think at 23, I would have been man enough to face the team and tell him, hey, look, I can't do this anymore. But I guess it works better these modern days, right? Well, I wasn't ranked 12th overall in the world at 23. <laughs> so I, I think that exactly. has something to do with like, hey, let's let's keep them happy sort of thing. But Mateus, do you want to have a 10, 15 year career. I see so much of the movement in cycling right now is are young kids, your age or, you know, right around your age, even, even younger sometimes when, when we became pro, it was like, I'm going to be pro for 15 years. Some were pro for 20 years, but it seems like now that longevity doesn't need to happen. So I'm curious, is, is that something that you want? a long career or do you want to be as successful as you can right now and then just let the chips fall where they may when you get a little bit older no i, I want a long a long career uh, uh it sounds stupid but I, I like going on altitude camps and you know working towards a goal being alone on a mountain just see the progression every day um of course if one pint i'm start being competitive and, you know, you don't see any progression anymore or you see a de decrease in performance, I will consider my career. But I, I hope that will only be in uh, yeah, 12, 15 years. So when you say you like uh, going to training camps and you have like, let's say, a good five, maybe six hour bike ride, right? Six hour bike ride. That still leaves 18 hours of the day left. 
What do you do in these 18 hours in an altitude training camp? Read books, learn another language, or you bring your girlfriend with you, or how do you spend time with it? I mean, there's some core work, I guess. You check your bike, do some stretching and all that. And, and how's the cooking? Do you cook for yourself? Somebody weigh the food for you and cook it for you? How does the day look up there on where you go in, in Lanzarote, Tide or whatever that's called? No, actually, uh, before Swiss, I went to Andorra. Uh, I had my best friend with me uh, and a sonier. So we could use time quite good, you know, train together, uh, be uh, together after. Then you use one hour to shower, cook the lunch. Uh, then you rest a little bit, have a snack again, then massage. And then after massage, you probably start cooking again. In the evening, you play uh, a little bit of games and then uh, to bed and then uh, you sleep eight, nine hours as well. So uh, that, that's, that's what I'm doing. I mean, I like doing nothing. Oh, don't you remember those days, Yenzi? Eat, sleep, train. I, I mean, mm -hmm. 10 hours of sleep, you know, wake up, ride your bike. I don't know how we used to, to get anything done like yard work and change the nappies for the, <laughs> for the kids and, and whatnot. But um, so what do, you, what do you concentrate on? Because there's so many people that are talking about going to these altitude camps. Um, if you can share like, not the, the details, but what is your main goal when you go to an altitude camp? And actually, why do you go up to altitude? No, uh, I go to altitude to improve my blood values and um, lose weight. Uh, especially now when I live in Denmark, also to do climbing efforts or long climbing efforts. Uh, but yeah, that's the main reason. It's always a little bit easier to lose uh, weight in altitude. Uh, of course, you have the, yeah, the blood uh, gains. And um, that's the big reason. I have no uh, big scientific idea where I go. Uh, but I just follow my coach advice. And do you have then... Um, you have to scale there, right? So you try yes. to stay on the same weight or you try to go down a little bit every day or you have a goal. I'm be here for 18 days and I'm going to lose one or two or three kilos, like a steady progression or how's that going to work for you? No, uh, before Swiss, uh, I was working with my nutritionist, so I didn't eat anything. I hadn't weighed before. Uh, and we had an idea before the tour, I should be on 62 kilos on the Adens, I was at 65. So we just saw a small decrease, decrease in weight all the time. Actually, it was more uh, like in altitude, I lost a little bit. But when I arrived home from altitude, I start, uh, that's where the weight was uh, gone. I can explain if you gain a little bit of water in altitude or something like this. But uh, it was only when I arrived home from these camps or down to sea level, uh, I saw the real gains. Wow. I don't uh, miss, well, I never weighed my food, and I know Jens didn't weigh his food. Um, <laughs> Not I couldn't all. even keep up with how much he used to eat. It was, it was, it was that crazy. But what is, the, what is the trick to losing weight at altitude? Because obviously you have to eat well the night before. 
You have to eat well prior to the training. You have to fuel during the training, which is, I think, uh, the biggest mistake of, of our generation was we never fueled or we didn't fuel enough for the training. So we had what I now refer to as wasted training minutes, unfueled wasted training minutes. So when you get back, obviously you need to replenish your glycogen stores for the next day because you're up there for two, three weeks. Where is there room to cut weight? Or is it just that overall volume of training that you're doing, which is allowing you to lose that weight? Um, no, I mean, on big days, we don't focus on being in calorie deficit. But, you know, is the red days a little bit easier day? You know, where you can adjust a little bit and it doesn't mean so much to be a little bit in deficit. That's where you make the difference for me. And, you know, when I do this, I have like four meals a day. And when you have four meals a day, plus the one you eat or what you eat on the bike, um, it's quite okay. You know, then you eat, um, you know, dense food, but with low calorie. So like uh, low calorie yogurt, um, high protein stuff, not so many carbs, not too much fat. And that that's actually keeps me, um, yeah, quite full all day without thinking I'm in deficit. Seems like it works well. I think, Bobby, it, from listening to the younger kids, uh, how they train and eat, I think difference between our times and now is we had a super large breakfast, overloaded. Then we had not enough in the first one or two hours of the races and then had a super massive dinner again. I think what they do, what they do these days is smaller brekkie, but then just keep eating small portions, keep the, the entire like sugar and intake level constant. And we went like big brekkie, nothing for two hours, you know? And I think that's the difference. They, they eat probably the same calories like we did, but in a smarter way, I guess. Would, would that make sense, Matthias? Yes, 100%. Uh, I think the biggest difference from when you guys were pro and now is that we eat so much on the bike. You know, I can have seven hours and I will be eating close to 900 grams of carbs. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, we never went even close. They're not even half of it, I guess, Bobby, yeah. right? So, you know, you're oh. having seven hours eating between 120 and 130 grams an hour. Uh, you know, just pure carbs going in. And uh, yeah, when you eat so much, you're... you're, you're it's, it's impossible to get a hunger flat, uh, you know. Well, you, you hit it right on the head. I mean, um, you got to have the fuel availability if you're going to be burning it. And that's why I believe that the generation of current cyclists like yourself are giving us such amazing racing, such exciting racing. Like you're not seeing these bad days, um, you know what happened to Remco Evenepoel in the Vuelta this year was like an anomaly. That was like a wait that used to happen 10, 15, 20 years ago, but you don't see that anymore, but let's talk about Lidl Trek for next year. Um, yeah. You guys went to the woodshed as far as new recruits. So you got Simone Consoni from Cofidis, Patrick Conrad from Bora Hansgrohe, Andrea Bagioli from Sudal Quickstep, Teo Gegenhart from Ineos, Jonathan, Jonathan Milan from 
Baran, Baran Victorious. I always mispronounce that. Fabio Fellini from Astana. Ryan Gibbons from UAE. Carlos Verona. And then just today, Tim DeClerc from, from Sudal Quickstep. I mean, leadership is going to be paramount here. And you you obviously have taken up a big responsibility of leadership in your team. How is it going to be having all, you know, all your teammates that you had this year that resigned and then this these 10 new guys coming into the team? What's your leadership philosophy and what how much do you think that that's going to fall on your shoulders? Uh I hope a lot. Uh I'm not good at showing leadership. I've improved a lot the last 2 years, especially listening a lot to Mas Pedersen. Uh, and and I hope I get a lot of responsibility. Uh, you know, I want to show the new guys how we do it here. Uh, you know, show that I'm a good leader, somebody they can trust, somebody is worth putting their own performance uh, above uh, or up below my performance to have the best team result. And, uh, you know, just respect them. If they have a better day and it makes more sense to go for them, also give them the shot, help them. I think that's the uh, biggest thing you can do as a leader, you know, to uh, give others when you don't can perform yourself. Very wise words. Looks like the team spirit is going the right way there as well. Um, you're going to have the chance to meet all the new team members and old team members in one place or because some are Australians, New Zealand and living all over the country, all over the world, basically. Are you, you guys planning with Little Track to have like a central camp where everybody is there? Yes, we will go to the US on Monday uh, with both the, the men's team and the women's team. So, uh, yeah, and then also a lot of staff there. So we will be, uh, yeah, more than 60 guys there from the team. Wow. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, getting that many kids rounded up into one place must be quite the logistical challenge. But l yeah. you mentioned that, that Kim Anderson um, has already kind of given you your schedule for next year. So have yeah. you had time to digest that and think about your goals? I mean, where are we going to see Mateus Skimoza next year just really cranking it out? What, what do you want to accomplish next year? Uh, I want to do a really good attendance week. Uh, I want to uh, to to really improve my result in Liège, especially. Uh, I will have a crack at Dauphiné, then uh, hopefully the Olympics, and uh, having uh, a big goal in uh, Vuelta and uh, and the Worlds after. So, I don't know if you picked up on this, Yenzi. I didn't hear the Tour de France in there. I heard Dauphiné. Oh. I heard the Olympics. I heard the Vuelta. So when are we when are we going to see you? Is this a again very very smart decision? But at the same time, is that going to be something on your your bucket list maybe in twenty twenty five? Then that's the reason why I'm doing well to this year. Uh, Kim came with his master plan um, to to do a GC in Vuelta, to have a GC before uh, going all in for the tour next year. Um, apparently, from what I have seen as in my time as a commentator on Eurosport or before with NBC, a lot of young talents or aspiring GC riders take the Vuelta as the first step. It, 
there's none of them is easy. Don't get me wrong. No, no. Right. But apparently it is the Vuelta is the easiest or the best way to start. I have seen it a few times. Would that be the reason for you to pick that race as well? Yes, uh, I should say, uh, Jens, um, none of them is easy. And maybe even course-wise, the world can be the hardest one, you know, with, yes. a, with a lot of mountain stages. But also uh, the easiest one mentally. It's, uh, it's a lot with the easy mentality and not so much stress, as especially the tour can be. Uh, so that's why, um, you know, we, we, we want to have a good GC before we really give it a quack uh, at the tour. Sounds like Kim is still uh, Kim. I mean, he's, <laughs> mm -hmm. he's one of my favorite DSs of all time. Um, I have to give a shout out. I mean, this year has been fantastic as an American and seeing a lot of young Americans perform, you know, punch well above their weight. But I need to give a shout out to my boy, Riley Sheehan, who just won Perry Tours. And that gives me as an American, another American rider to look at. But I want to know what new young Danish talent is is on the horizon. Is there any new young wonderkin <laughs> from uh, from Denmark that we that may be giving you competition for the Tour de France podium in, in the coming years? Uh, I don't know about the Tour de France podium, but you have uh, Albert Philipsen, who was junior world champ at 16 years of age. And... Uh, Worlds, uh, the Danish hotel was visited by nine World Tour teams. Uh, so uh, I think he's a really uh, attractive guy for a lot of teams. Now, when you um, talk about uh, GC um, aspirations and so on, um, do you or Kim Andersen have a master plan to, to tackle that other Danish rider? <laughs> Uh, that has already two yellows. <laughs> What's the plan to to like uh, to take him on? Because he looks pretty damn strong. Yes. Any plans uh, for that? Hopefully, Jonas is going for Gio Vuelta some years, and then uh, we're gonna be ready for the tour. No, I, 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 I mean Jonas is doing really good, and maybe one day I can be just as good as him. But for now, he's far away, and. Um, You know, hopefully uh, with age, he will also decline in performance. But uh, it's hard to see right now. So <laughs> right now, we hope he will not start. Well, you know, you got a good head on your shoulders. We wish you all the best of luck next year uh, with your current program and, and moving on into the future. Matthias, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. We hope when you do get on that Tour de France podium, you'll come back and, you know, remember old Bobby and Jens. But thank you again for finding the time. Now go and pick up your, your girlfriend's car and uh, keep that home life nice and happy. Thank you, guys. And thank you for having me again. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Matthias for being our guest. The show is a Bellow production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. And please remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Matthias told us he was super confident going into the Tour de Suisse this year. What's the most confident you've ever been? And were you right? 
Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and let us know.